Welcome to Ideas into Reality, a podcast to inspire everyone to take action to turn their ideas into reality. No matter what experience they have, where they live, or who they think they are right now. Each week, we introduce you to a founder that has taken their tiny flicker of an idea and done what it takes to bring it to reality. We also take a few minutes to dig into the how of some of the key lessons those founders have learned on their journey so that you can feel more confident in what to actually do as you start to take action on your idea. Ideas into Reality is hosted and produced by the team behind Canvas Coworking and Startup Toowoomba. So we'll be talking to founders from our local community here in regional Queensland, as well as some of the interesting folk that we have met during our travels around the globe. As you heard, Ideas into Reality is produced by the team behind Canvas Coworking. At Canvas Coworking, we're passionate about building the startup ecosystem in our region and beyond, connecting entrepreneurs, designers, developers, hackers, makers, hipsters, creatives, mentors, and investors. We're a not-for-profit incorporated association with an objective to support those who want to turn their ideas into reality. Since mid-2015, our community have been coming together to work, learn, and connect here at Canvas Coworking and online. We're located on Ruthven Street in Toowoomba, a small, beautiful city in the southeast of Queensland, the Sunshine State of Australia. Yet we know that many people don't really know yet what we do here or why we're here or how to become involved. So we hope that the information that you hear on this podcast will help you understand that all a little bit better and make you feel confident to join in whenever you're ready. So you can find out more at canvascoworking.com.au and reach out to us anytime. This week, I have the incredible pleasure of introducing you to Natalie D'Alessandro. Her story is inspiring on many levels. Some, like saving the planet, I feel strongly aligned with, while others, having rooms full of clothing and accessories, are less familiar to me. Yet over the last few months of having Natalie in the Flair Incubator program, I've learned that there's an incredibly close association between both these topics. And Natalie is a driving force to create a better solution to bring sustainable fashion into the minds, hearts and hands of people all over the world through her wardrobe markets. Thank you so much for joining me today, Natalie. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I know that there's a lot about you that I don't know a lot about, so I'm looking forward to learning some secrets. So we'll get you to start off by just a quick intro of yourself and a little bit about Her Wardrobe Markets. My name's Natalie D'Alessandro and Her Wardrobe Markets is transforming the way we buy and sell fashion to support an ethical, sustainable fashion industry. And we're doing that by running real-life fashion market events in local areas from the Sunshine Coast down to northern New South Wales. And what about you? Tell us one fun fact about you. Well, I love travelling. So that used to be fun. It's no longer fun anymore with the border shut. Um, But what's really interesting about not being able to travel is having this opportunity to really look closely at my business. So uh, what I thought might be not so fun has actually turned out to be really interesting and an adventure to kind of um, deep dive into her wardrobe markets and see how we can grow them. And I have heard a little bit about some of your other travels, thinking that some of that might come up in our conversation today, but we'll see where it takes us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so Her Wardrobe Markets has, has been running. So I'm keen to know when you first started the, the concept, whether it was actually called Her Wardrobe Markets or something else, but what was actually going on in your life around the time you got the idea to do this? Well, um, Her Wardrobe Markets launched in 2015, so we've been on a bit of a journey for uh, five years. Um, It was a pretty tumultuous time in my life when I launched it. Um, My mum had a a recurrence of cancer, Um, so she had recovered from breast cancer and then she was diagnosed with a a secondary cancer. Um, She's fine now, so um, that's all good and she's um, uh, strong and healthy uh, and wonderful. Um, but during that time, there was a, a really a, a lot going on for me. And um, 
the decision to launch her wardrobe markets basically came from listening to my customers. So I guess I have to just delve into a little bit of a, a reason why I already had customers. Um, and, and it is a, a bit longer journey. So I launched uh, Fashionista Events in 2003. And what I was doing back then was helping with the end of life cycle part of the fashion industry. So for example, if you were uh, kind of a mid-level Australian designer brand at the end of every season, you would have excess stock. So what I did, I created these uh, three or four day events and um, did warehouse sales for um, some brands like Herringbone and Sass and Bite. Then we went into multi-branded events and uh, it, it was great. So it was this high energy kind of environment with people loving getting bargains and I was 23 and uh, everything was great. Um, and then a few things happened along the way. Uh, I, I ended up doing these um, events for many different brands. I pivoted at some point to taking um, my business completely online. And what I did was created a newsletter where uh, brands could advertise uh, their end of season warehouse sales and pay me to get the word out to my big database. Um, and that was all going swimmingly. And then the GFC hit and then some interesting things kind of fell out in the fashion industry in Australia um, post-GFC. Um, and the major one was that the fast fashion companies like H&M and Zara and Topshop all started looking at Australia to, to move here in a physical realm. So uh, there was a confluence of factors back then economically that kind of put us in a position with a, a high Australian dollar. And Australians had never been really able to access uh, cheap, fast fashion at that volume before. And we just showed these companies by buying online, we had such a voracious appetite uh, for that kind of fashion and option and volume here in Australia. Uh, I took that pretty badly. I, I, I didn't, I've never really liked um, fast fashion. I've always kind of been of the opinion that if you were in Madrid and you're walking down Gran Via, then that would be a great time to shop at Zara. Uh, you know, I, I like buying things where, where things come from and each piece having a story. Um, but Australians didn't see it like that and they just basically um, switched from these mid-level uh, Australian designer brands that I was working with to buying fast fashion because it was fun and exciting and cheap. And I guess um, the devastating outcome of that was lots of my uh, mid-level Australian fashion designer brands who were advertising with me in my newsletter went out of business. So. I didn't freak out. It was just something that was happening and I, I knew I, I was going to have to do something different in business and I, I had a, a bit of a long-term view about it, that things were going to have to change. I just wasn't quite sure how they were going to have to change. So I also had clients who were fashion agents and boutique owners. So uh, a big part of the industry who started feeling the pinch would ch chat to me and so I would listen to them. And one of the things that I kept hearing over and over again was I've got no room left in my house for all these clothes. Um, and just a sidebar of working in the fashion industry, it's probably because you love fashion. <laughs> so because it's not that easy an industry to work in. So if you're working in our fashion and you get access to um, new items all the time, it's likely you may have a few extra pieces than what you need. And when I say a few extra pieces, with people who are working in the industry, it could be 500 pieces and it could be the equivalent to two bedrooms. So, you know, six or seven racks that they had each that they wouldn't mind getting rid of. And back in this day, kind of 2009-ish, there wasn't really any great peer-to-peer -peer options. Um, eBay was around, but it was time-consuming. Anyway, so I ended up launching this brand called The Diva's Wardrobe and um, got all my mates who were in the industry, uh, I think there were about nine of them, I hired a pop-up space in Fortitude Valley in Brisbane and we ran a one-night event. And on that night, it was also a once-in-a-decade flood and I decided I've been planning this for months, I'm just going to go ahead with it. We'll just see what happens. If, it, if no one shows up because of the rain, which usually happens in Brisbane, we'll just do it all over again. Well, there was a lineup down the street. People had their umbrellas out. They were wearing their boots. And once we let them inside, it was just absolutely mayhem. We didn't have enough FPOS machines. There was uh, 300 people trying to try on clothes. So there were just women whipping off their clothes in the, in the middle of the um, uh, warehouse space and trying things on. And from there, it kind of uh, grew this passion in me to kind of explore the, the secondhand option. Um, and that was 2009. It took me six years to listen to the fact that everyone else also wanted to have access to this kind of um, market to participate in. 
And so I launched um, her wardrobe market as like a wardrobe for every uh, man, woman and child who wants to sell items from their wardrobe, but being particularly focused on the fact that this is a problem that women mostly face. Wow, I can just imagine <laughs> such a venue and, and all those women, like, you know, if it's raining outside, they've all come in, they're all excited. That would have been such a great atmosphere, I imagine, except, yeah, lack of ethpos machines. But it's it's so good to hear you reflect on the backstory and really how you did get to this point and, and the fact that it was a journey and it was something that you were really enjoying doing, but the market changed and, and shifted and therefore you had to adapt and you had to look and, and listen to what people were saying and find uh, a problem to be solved. I think, yeah, I think the trap we fall into is when we hear problems, we think to ourselves, oh, please don't come to me with your problem, whereas a lot of the times that's really like the pearl of wisdom um, that can sometimes transform not only the person who you're talking to experience but you also your own. Um, and I, and I love being solution focused. Yeah. Yep. That's, I, I see that in you. <laughs> so, so you already had run an event, so uh, an event, and then you took it forward and you were thinking, okay, so I've gone from my friends who have rooms full of stuff, um, clothes, and I imagine accessories and all those sorts of things. And then it's it's progressed from there to include obviously other people in in the markets that you run now. So maybe just describe what was that transition like? Like how did you go from running this one massive event as a, a brand new thing into into what it's becoming and, and has become over that those few years? What was that journey like and what did you do? Mm. Well, interestingly, um, there was two parts to this really. So um, the first part was just getting my head around what needed to be done. So um, running when I ran the first event, I ran it like I had done my previous events where I got stock from designers. And that was fine because I could work with my friends and these people in the industry on that same basis too. And that was on a consignment basis or um, in a contract world, we would call it a sale or return basis. So I went from this concept of um, taking a commission on sale or return to somehow making it more accessible for um, the everyday person. But I didn't do it in one step. Um, I had to mentally get my head around what it would mean going from one to the other. And um, I started running the Divas wardrobe more often and uh, I did it in different locations and I came up with a system whereby uh, I wasn't making money off the sale of the items. It was making money off the um, provision of stall. So uh, if you were a diva, you would pay a fee and you would get your stall. Um, and it was came, became more obvious to me then that it was more like a, a market environment. But prior to that, I, because I was coming from what I had come from, it it was um, more of a, a consignment kind of arrangement. So I think the first thing was getting my head around that it was just going to be a little bit different. And um, I love working with women. That's one of my favourite things. But you get women who are creative, who love fashion and being told what to do, and I liken it to having to herd cats. And I love cats, so that's great. Um, but it's just a bit more challenging, getting people going in, in all different directions and not quite sure and people be participating in these kind of events for the first time, not quite sure, knowing what to expect. So the first part was me getting my head mentally around it and then the second part was me building structures and processes around how I could um, make, the, make the process more streamlined for everyone who was participating. Um, and luckily I had got onto Facebook quite early in the piece and I became kind of like an intuitive and natural uh, speaker on Facebook with our brand um, and I had built the database so going from one to the other in terms of getting access to customers wasn't that difficult from the place I was coming from uh, once I had figured out what I was doing and the processes that, that would support those people. I can only imagine even that word, the divas, the, the challenges that would come with that. It's kind of, in my mind, it's like a bridezilla type environment. <laughs> Well, I think definitely, and I I give the the women or the divas who I work with because I'm actually um, still doing divas wardrobe as well. I give them so much kudos for putting themselves out there and doing that that I have a hundred percent respect for them, and they know that they can throw a tantrum up until a point, 
Um, but they also all have a, a mutual respect for um, not only me, but also everyone else in the room. And I think that comes down to kind of the culture that um, I've built around what this event means. And um, it's not the glitzy, glamoury, fashion-y, champagne kind of thing that, that you can think of. It's more accessible and fun and adventurous and um, there's a lot of kindness and um, community surrounding it. And that's really great to hear, I think, for for people like myself. And I realise this is a podcast, so people can't see me, but I'm sitting here in jeans and a T-shirt. That's my general attire. Over the last couple of months, I've gone to some button-down blouses. So, you know, it's it's progress. But going to something like that would be super intimidating, unless, like, in, in my mind, unless I knew what to expect. And I imagine people coming from the fashion industry probably had a certain expectation if they'd been more on that consignment sort of base type event and the, the champagne and the diamonds and, and things that you might imagine from the movies. And then those who are coming, maybe they really love fashion, but they've not been involved in the industry and have a different expectation of what that could be. And finding that balance between the two, I imagine, was probably quite challenging from a community building perspective, was it? Did did they sort of hit it off straight away, the industry versus the non-industry people? Um, you mean the Divas wardrobe when the non-industry people would come and shop? Yeah. Yeah, I think it, I think it was all, always about the way I had communicated what it was. So it was come and shop from the uh, fashion industry inside as personal wardrobes. And it, it was very accessible language that I used. Oh, would you... Um, also use lots of examples so for example and and brands speak um to to their audience right so if i'm selling uh, uh reselling sass and Bide, then a person buying that already knows they've got something in common with me and it doesn't matter um if we've got different backgrounds so the fact that we're we both like the same brands is enough of a uh, a unifier um I used to always say, actually, that beer is the greatest, greatest equaliser, but maybe it's the fashion brands you like. Yeah. <laughs> um, but funnily enough, Joy, when you were saying um, you can't see me on this podcast and I'm wearing this same thing, um, you and I were on a Zoom call yesterday together and you saw me and I'm wearing the same thing that I was wearing yesterday, which is what I like to do. And in the industry, if you do that, it has a name. It's called Outfit Repeating. And outfit repeating is something that I absolutely encourage and implore and uh, it's just something we should all do. But when I was contemplating seeing you today and whether or not we were having a a video or an audio chat, it crossed my mind that I was going to have to say to you, I'm wearing what I wore yesterday. And it's so silly that I, after 17 years in the fashion industry, when I know my values and I know where I'm at, I still felt like it was something that I wanted to express to you. So just in case you were judging me for wearing the same thing as yesterday, so silly. You've got to remember who you're talking to. I would not have remembered what you wore yesterday. I don't remember what I wore yesterday <laughs> unless it's still on the side um, table of my, my bedroom. Do you, hang on. Just out of interest, do you ever think that? Do you ever think I'm going to see the same people and I'm wearing the same thing or does it never cross your mind anymore? Never crosses my mind. I either wear a red T-shirt or a black T-shirt. It's the same T-shirt as such. Like, yeah. So I wear the same thing every day. So funnily enough, I got my first staff member on board this year in February and um, I'm just thinking what people might be listening to this podcast thinking, oh, Joy's telling Natalie she wears the same thing. Natalie must have an opinion about that. Well, I actually don't and I love it. Well, if I did have an opinion, I actually love it because it means you're making more choice than you actually think. Like the fact that you've actually considered that and that's your choice to me is a great reflection of who you are. And so when Nathan came to work with me in um, February this year, he actually wears the same thing every day too. So he wears a pair of fishing pants and a black T-shirt and that's it. That's his entire wardrobe. So when we were starting to talk about working together and he was like, oh, it's just so weird. I'm, I'm going into this um, fashion environment and look what I wear. And I was like, it is, what you wear is the most powerful thing about you if you're making that statement over and over. I absolutely commend the commitment and I think it is great great personal branding (laughs) (laughs) let's go with that as opposed to joy has very limited fashion sense and can't put things together (laughs) so just chooses not to but no that's not quite true I can if I if I put my mind to it and I have managed to like you know when we get together for flare events now I have three different blouses that I wear every single time <laughs> beautiful and do you know what oh, I can see you and I know everyone else can't but you actually lit up when you said that and that's to 
to me what I absolutely love about fashion. It doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't happen uh, with everyone. But it's it's something that can really bring um, that glint to someone's eye, um, just remembering something about what they wore or um, their favourite dress or their favourite shoes, and I love it. Cool. That's good. I'm I'm glad. And, and I am. I'm getting there. So creating... All of these events obviously has been something that you've, like you've said, you've learned how to realise that they're different from what you were originally doing. Was there something that you actually did to help you learn how to do it differently? Like, did you take a course? Did you phone a friend? Like, was there something you did to actually learn what needed to be done? Um, I'm just taking a moment to contemplate because I'm sure there would have been things that I did because that's what I do. I do things. <laughs> um, I, I've done a, a, quite a few things, but I don't think it was in um, uh, thinking about solving the problem. So, for example, I went to Harvard on an executive education week and it was a course that I did there on launching new ventures and um, just being in that room and focusing on uh, case studies and kind of just being in the environment, I think that really kind of helped me open my eyes to either seeing the problem a bit differently or um, analysing a bit differently. I can't really remember specific, specifically something that I, I did do, um, but I always think to myself, if I wasn't running events, I'm not sure I would get anything done. So um, what's good about uh, the fact that I've got an event and a deadline is that if I can see a problem that's happened in a previous event that really needs addressing, then I can kind of try it out in the next event without thinking to myself, this is going to be the solution forever. I can kind of try a solution and tweak as I go along. And I'm sure there's definitely still some um, tweaking to be done going forward. Um, but there was one particular weekend, I remember it was my birthday a few years ago, and a friend had said to me, uh, I've got tickets to this festival in Stradbroke Island and you should come. I said, oh, I can't. I've got an event on Sunday. And he looked at me and he said, you've been doing these events for three years. Do you still really have to go to all your events? And I think this was on a Thursday. And I had been thinking in my mind about how I might solve the problem of me not having to be at every single event. Um, but I was too scared to try it out because I was afraid that the people who I was going to ask to help me were going to say no. So I was stuck in this bizarre limbo position of I think I've got a solution but I'm too scared to test it because if they say no, then I don't have a solution, which in retrospect is the silliest way to try and solve a problem. So um, I approached these people on the Thursday. I walked in with a, um, a contract that I had just kind of put together myself. Um, I have a couple of friends who are lawyers and I asked them to help me try and go in the right direction of where to get started. And... Um, pretty much they signed up for that on the spot and have been um, looking after that location for me ever since. That's awesome. I think knowing that you thought it could be possible, but then having someone else say, why are you not doing this? Or why are you doing this? Whichever way you want to look at it. And then you go, actually, yeah, let's just do that and make it happen and make it happen quickly and see if it works. Yes. And obviously it did and it still is. So that's, that's awesome. I also love the fact that you're like, I had a couple of lawyer friends and that I think is such a big part of how we do move forward because if you had to write a contract and you didn't have a lawyer friend, then the thought of going, oh, I've got to spend this money or I've got to engage somebody and I don't really know what I'm asking and maybe I'm not going to ask the right questions as opposed to I've, I've got to phone a friend. I can phone a friend and they can give me some advice. I know where I can turn to get that advice. I think that's a really valuable asset to have in your in your life or in, in the networks that you work in. So that's cool. I do too. And funnily enough, since working in the FLARE program, I've been, and particularly our session yesterday, we were talking about um, investors. I kind of looked at um, my business and structure and what it might look like if I might want to have an investor down the track. And instead of kind of just saying, no, it's too hard, the incubator process has helped me kind of um, just open my mind a bit about things where I might have been closed-minded before. So, 
funnily enough, yesterday I sent a lawyer friend of mine a message saying, can I take you out for a coffee tomorrow? So I'm actually taking her out for lunch today. I'm going up to Brisbane and I'm taking her out for lunch today. And I'm just going to say to her, because she works for a company that I think might be the type of company who would end up acquiring her wardrobe markets if it was something that could um, be acquired. So the purpose of the lunch is to just sit down with her and say, hey, if my business were to ever be for sale and I was able to put a a piece of paper in front of you, what would that piece of paper have to say in order for you to take it to a decision maker? And that all fell out from yesterday's um, Zoom session. So I'm pretty excited to see what she says today. I think that that exact process of going, I know I'm not ready to do it right now, but I'm preparing myself for the time when that might become something that I might want to do, that this is what I'd need to do is is great preparation. So well done. And I also think that um, not, not having to commit to something just because it's an idea, you can still explore that idea without being completely committed to it because I might have lunch with her today and think to myself, oh, well, that's just altogether too much work or it's not the direction that I thought she would uh, say or it, she's not the kind of she's not working for the kind of organisation who's interested. Um, but it doesn't take the excitement off the table of just think, thinking of the possibilities. And I think, to be honest, it's the excitement that keeps up with the momentum of business because as soon as you kind of get um, bored or, or this is me, as soon as I kind of get bored and things aren't changing, then that's when um, my motivation kind of wanes and uh, I lose excitement. I think it's not just you. I think it's most of us and that it's it's those new exciting things that make us get up and go, I'm happy to do this today. I, I'm looking forward to this. And maybe there's a few other things that are a bit boring, but I'll get through them because I know there's some exciting stuff as well. So that's good. So along this journey of creating the markets and, and learning who your, who your customer is and, and how you can start to scale your business by bringing in other people and getting them to work with you, uh, I imagine there's been some, some good things that have happened, but maybe some things that have gone like totally pear-shaped and, and obviously in the early days, the GFC was probably a bit of a, a pothole in, in your road that you were planning at the time. But what's, what's it been like over these last few years of, of creating these markets and having multiple versions, having people working, let's say, with you, for you, whichever way you want to look at that? You know, what's the reality been like? I mean, uh, mostly it's been great. I uh, have kind of designed the business to give me a lifestyle that I want. So it's very difficult to look at the business and and tell you any major uh, potholes. But also in the last five years, I haven't taken too many risks. You know, I've um, followed the demand. I've uh, kept up with where people want these markets to go. And I think probably the the pothole there really is, is to just falling into the um, easy life, you know. I'm off to Mexico now with some friends and I'll be there for three weeks and um, really forgetting kind of the the purpose of why I started doing this and um, how great the outcomes really are for people who participate in the environment. So may, maybe just getting um, a little too complacent Um but having this time at home and um, during the pandemic and being accepted as the flare incubator has kind of put me on a different trajectory. And I'm hoping that when borders open up, I'll be able to balance my need for freedom and my want for this business to really um, grow and be accessible to everyone who wants it. Um so even though that doesn't sound like a major pitfall, <laughs> in retrospect, I think maybe the complacency of not seeking that that growth. Yeah, I think comfort zones are definitely potholes. I think we fall into them and, and it's like, yep, I can do this, you know, kind of with my eyes shut and I'm not necessarily testing myself because I've found this comfy place. So yeah, definitely. So I'm happy to hear that at least Flare Incubator is helping to make that a little bit not as comfortable if that's the right way to put it and and pushing you along to to achieve more. So you mentioned there about the environment. I probably just want to dig into that a little bit because I know from from having spoken to you over the last well, few quite a few months now that it's it is a core driver behind what you're doing now and the the fast fashion movement obviously a lot of people might have kind of heard of it but don't really understand what an impact it's making. And I know it's something that you're particularly proud of in in 
what you can help in terms of the environment. So do you just want to share a little bit about what that what that means, why that's important and and why that is a focus for you as well? Yes, so I don't talk about this a lot because um, I find it uh, quite challenging to really come up face-to-face with um, what the fashion industry is because when I decided that that's what I wanted to work in, it was all because, you know, of this great self-expression that the fashion industry allowed people and um, Bill Cunningham famously said that when I wake up in the morning, um, my clothes are my armour. So that's really how I considered fashion for a lot of time. And then um, when I started really working into her wardrobe markets and looking at just the scale and volume of items that were coming through the markets, I would spend a lot of time researching and finding out more about this stuff. Um, I would go to sustainable fashion uh, conferences and and learn about these things and I mean, I'll just touch on a few of them. Um, so there's the ethical side of production, which is a problem. So um, uh, modern slavery is a, is a huge problem and it uh, affects mostly women. And women are sent to work in warehouses under uh, horrible conditions and getting uh, paid not nearly enough money and, and working way too hard. And it's And it's something that I feel like the curtain has been drawn back for people if they want to have a look. But having a look is is so difficult that most people don't. Um, so that's the one thing is the production. The other thing is the production volumes. So if you have a look at like H&M and Zara and Topshop, that I don't know the exact figures, but it's like trillions and trillions of pieces coming into uh, countries that have got way less people than what this the fashion is. So it's huge volumes. And then the, the major fallout from that is... Uh, what goes directly to landfill and you know I was talking about this with my dad he's like well what's wrong if it goes to landfill (laughs) so um, I think there's a a lot of ignorance about you know what happens with the decomposition of materials how long it takes over time and that kind of stuff Um, and then there's the issue of materials so the production of materials for new items and how that occurs and you've got um, issues with chemicals issues with dyeing um, uh, so, you know, there are cities in China that are just uh, are choked full of all their waterways being completely dyed that they've got no longer any fresh drinking water. Um, uh, cotton uses so much water uh, to produce and chemicals and then organic cotton <laughs> is a slightly better option. Um, I, I feel like I could just talk about the problems forever, which is probably a why I never start. Um, I think the most confronting thing for me was was when I was at a, a sustainable fashion conference in Sydney and I was uh, talking to a girl who worked for a um, a major uh, charity that takes uh, secondhand clothes and sells them and she was telling me about how um, they've got multiple markets that they sell their items to in developing countries and if you look further into that, African nations are begging um, pretty much Australians to stop sending their secondhand stuff there because it's killing local textile industries. Um, but I think even more troublesome than that is there's this thing um, called textile fuel blocks where if you can just picture like a, a mass compactor compacting all these um, old textiles into literal blocks, huge blocks and being sent to places like Malaysia to create um, energy, like burn for, for energy, like a very dirty um, bowl. And go and try and find out more information about this. You just can't. Like if you Google textile fuel block and put um, quotation marks around it, you cannot find anything about them. So to, to me, there's this kind of whole part of the industry that is so destructive and it would be so divisive if we even knew about it that it's scary. I think ignorance is is where a lot of people turn to. I prefer not to know all of those things is, is the response that a lot of people have because they feel that they're disempowered, that there's nothing they can do about it. Where else, where else can I buy my clothes if I don't go to the store and buy them and how can I control how they're made? All of those things sort of come up. But... I think what you're doing, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but what you're doing is helping to change the, the be- not the beliefs, but the, um, 
I guess the the positive side of recognizing that that problem exists, but there is something you can do about it, and and what that can look like, and and how it can actually create the impact that a lot of us want. Like we know we want to make a better impact, but you kind of feel a bit powerless at the moment, particularly if you don't have the facts or or the facts frighten you to the point of of inaction. So I think that for me, it's good to know that that is the driver behind what you're doing as well. So yeah, so that's that's pretty cool. I, I might just ask on that then, you've been to the sustainable fashion conferences and, and things like that. Do you see in society, and that might be too broad a term, but do you see in society that there is a shift? Like, is it actually shifting or is it just becoming aware that we need to shift or or where's the needle I guess on that on on our impact there um I think it's probably exactly where it is on the environment as a whole across all levels of um the society right now I think there's a, a certain portion that see it there's a certain portion that ignore it there's a certain portion portion taking action um and there's a certain portion that um just participate in whatever level that's easy and comfortable for them so um i don't think it's any different necessarily from anything else but that's not to say that anything else is great i think that um you know uh, i remember when i was in grade seven and my teacher was talking about um global warming and i remember distinctly thinking to myself at 12 years old thank goodness they're talking about this now so the adults will look after it so i don't have to do it when i get older and there was some moment not that long ago, actually, where I realised that I actually had to be that person because we've just been kicking the can down the road for so long that um, just feeling hopeless and helpless really is supporting the continuation of the old way of doing things. And that no matter how small an action you take in the right direction, that if we all did this, then at least we'd all be aligned pointing w- where we would want it to go. Um, I mean, this conversation could get like quite, quite controversial about what's happening in politics and all that kind of stuff right now. But there is a real, really big driver towards hatred that I think is just goes against any kind of goodness that we can do for our planet and, and people. And I think probably th- that's the scariest thing that we're we're dealing with right right now. And uh, I don't know what it's going to take for the needle to shift either one way or the other. Um, I would hate to think that it was the result of an election that would do that. Um, and I'm talking about the election in the States, not the election in Queensland. Um, but uh, I think that will unfold over time and the people who ha- have got a conscience about this, hopefully if we can just empower everyone to take a small step, I think that's the only way anything's going to get achieved. Agreed. So taking steps is something you've been doing. So I'm keen to know what are you most proud of that you've achieved so far? Well, that's so funny that you said taking steps because if I was to look back and um, think about what I'm most proud of that I've achieved so far, it has nothing to do with my business but everything to do with taking steps because I um, walked uh, 800 kilometres across uh, France and Spain uh, walking the Camino in 2017. And um, I'm most proud of that, actually the doing of it, but the fallout from um, what uh, I learned on that pilgrimage is what I'm most proud of because I continue to learn every day. And one of the greatest things that I learned while being, um, well, you know, waking up and walking 25 to 35 kilometres every day for 37 days was that it's good to have a direction and a goal. <laughs> and um, uh, just actually putting some things into place and, and uh, having that beacon and working towards the beacon I think is um, the, the greatest thing that I've done kind of like in the last couple of years and that's what I'm most proud of. Awesome, super jealous, hopefully <laughs> I will get there. I, I've never considered the Camino myself as something I've wanted to do until I met you and heard you talk about it and then it's kind of like I actually think that needs to go on my list. Like I've got a lot of things on my list but I think that needs to move up on the list. <laughs> 
Um, well, Joy, you just gave me goosebumps and I've actually got like a secondary story. I just need to tell you very quickly. So when you walk the Camino, you kind of meet people along the way and just meeting people is like a normal thing to do. Um, on the last day I walked into, uh, Santiago, uh, Camino de Santiago into the plaza in front of the cathedral. And that's the moment when, you know, you've arrived at your destination and everything's behind you. And, um, I walked in and I couldn't really muster up a tear or anything. It was just like I wasn't quite sure where I was. I was just a bit betwixt between uh, I've done all this journeying and now I'm at the a destination. What does it all mean? And there was a girl who was in tears crying and she was bent over and she was on the pavement and I just went up to her and I said, oh, can I give you a hug? And so she stood up and tears everywhere and we hugged each other and I just thought maybe having a conversation with her might kind of get her into the moment. So I said, oh, can I ask your name? And she said, Joy. And when she said Joy, I started crying because I hadn't had a name for the emotion that I was feeling until she said her name. So um, I've got that special connection with that word. And I also think you as the beacon of um, Flair and being your name, Joy, it was uh, a, a definite yes. <laughs> Someone yes always makes joy. me cry on every like podcast <laughs> episode, so so that just did it. So yeah, I think I need to go do that now. So when Absolutely. when we're allowed to well, fly, so, so that's awesome. Yes, well, just so you know, um, the idea of the pilgrimage was to get to this particular place, but there are all different um, kind of routes that you can take to get there. So I walked from Saint Jean Pierre de Port in France, and that was eight hundred or seven hundred ninety nine kilometers. But they're all different, um, and then I went back the following year. 250 kilometers but you come from everywhere you could go from Sevilla um, Madrid they're all different things so I think um, if you research it you might find a, a route that speaks directly to you I'll have to check it out and then hope and pray that we're allowed to go anywhere in the next little while <laughs> but it'll be there it'll be there when we can go so that's true that's good cool all right so you're part of Flair. And obviously the reason you applied for Flair was around your business and taking it forward. So I'm keen to share a little bit more around what, you know, what's the driver for you, but what what's the objective? What are you aiming for with your business in the vision that you have at the moment, acknowledging that that might change in the future as well? Yes. Um, so the thing that I'm working on in the incubator, I think, is a step towards growing it even further. So um, because you mentioned that the borders are shut and everything, um, I want to focus really on growing these markets in Australia. And just like I went through the markets, figuring out how to solve that problem, I think I run in six or seven or eight locations now. We've got actually three new locations opening this weekend um, and it's our goal to get to 10 events every weekend or 500 events per year. And so um, the reason for that objective supports all the other objectives, of course. You can't transform an industry if you're only in one location. So um, the growth is actually there to support the fact that if we're doing this here and it's so successful and people are loving it and wanting it and uh, embracing it, then I need to figure out how to then get it even further. Um, and uh, working with Nathan, who I mentioned, we're really working on finding new locations and driving, uh, having more events per year. I think one of the things that I've witnessed through that is just that realisation that this has such potential to create significant impact in local communities that perhaps are not otherwise served by this type of thing as well. And hearing you talk about that and the places that you've gone to, like, you know, it's not just Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne that you're in, like you're in the, the Sunshine Coast and the Gold Coast and, and northern New, New South Wales. And so places that are maybe not thought of as fashion locations. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure if I'm wrong there, but looking at those places where it's needed as well. Is that part of that's, your goal? That's really, well, that's so interesting that you think about it like that because I think that everywhere needs it. Um, so it, it would never occur to me to think of a place and think to myself, is that place fashionable? Would this be required in that place because of its fashion quotient? Um, I just think to myself, everyone needs clothes. And then I skip straight to everyone needs secondhand clothes. So um, the other options for secondhand clothes I kind of touched on earlier Um don't really offer the same raft of benefits that what I offer. So if you've got, you know, 60 or 70 items of clothes that you want to sell, the time it takes to list each item and then respond to people and then package it up and send it, 
to me, kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, there's more problems with that than actually turning up to a, a market, meeting some people, selling some stuff and going home again. Um, I love the hyper-local nature of what we do um, because it means that not only do you get to kind of you know, get out and be in your community and everyone's face is not stuck in their phones, that's great, but um, also just shipping everything, one dress shipping everywhere over, you know, what sometimes what you think is a solution and from, from the um, outset of it, and when you dig a little deeper, like there are amazing uh, frock websites where you can hire second, um, hire uh, gorgeous dresses. But when you think about the air miles that dress then has to to take in order to fly around and be everyone and dry clean and chemicals and all that kind of stuff, I think it's just much easier to kind of go, I'm done with this now. Hey, would you like to buy it from me? Yes, I would. Great. It's all done. Definitely. And also the, if you've ever tried selling anything online, my mum just tried to sell a scooter that she won, like an electric scooter thing. And so many people were like, oh, yeah, I want to buy it, but I'll offer you this much for it. Or, yeah, I'll come and look at it, but then they don't turn up. Like, it's such a headache to do that, where if you know, okay, on this day, at this time, I'm going to go there, all my stuff will go with me, and people will come and they'll buy what they buy and I'll take home what they don't. I think that's just yeah. such a more simple model um, of it so yeah makes makes sense and like you said you know it, they can be anywhere people do wear clothes everywhere it's a good thing yes <laughs> yes <laughs> so obviously along this journey you've learned lots of things about obviously the fashion and the sustainability side and the environment side, but around business as well. So if someone was to come up to you and say, hey, Nat, you know, I've got this idea for a business. What do you think I should do? What's the one thing that you think, okay, do this first? Meditate. <laughs> um, just uh, if you've got an idea or you don't have an idea, whatever the thing is, you just got to think first. Uh, and then you kind of have to draw a line in the sand and go, okay, my time thinking is done now. I kind of have to feel through this. And if you're getting a good feeling, go for it. Um, so that's the kind of hippie side of me. But the other side of me, um, I learned something from my dad pretty early on. Um, I think he said something to me in a scathing manner about the way I was organising something at, at one stage. I would often call him up and say, Dad, I've got 40,000 items of this arriving here and 20,000 items of this arriving there. What order do I do things in? And he would just pragmatically tell me you need to go here first probably need to stop for lunch and then you need to go there later so there are some things that I kind of don't get uh, first up and he told me about this principle and I think that if you google it it's a thing um uh the Merlin principle where you work backwards so you picture this guy with the wizard hat on and whatever you've wanted to achieve it's already been created and then you work back from the creation of it so um and it's easy for me because I go there's an event a thousand people come to the event. I've got 50 sellers at the event. So it's really easy for me to like figure out the things that I, I, I want to do, particularly with mine on a certain date at a certain time because it's an event. And then you just draw the line backwards from that to where you are today and you keep coming closer and closer to where you are now. And you kind of fill in all the details of things that you need to get done by going backwards. And it's a much easier kind of um, way to deal with your thoughts rather than trying to trudge forward and push through obstacles. Um, so that would probably be my um, biggest tip for where you want to go. Love it. And it fits with one of my favourite things, which is begin with the end in mind. What's the end picture look like? Let's start there. Very good. like that. Okay. So people are listening and they're going, cool, now I want some clothes. I want to go to one of these markets? Where can I find things? Where can I learn more about what is going on? So where can people find you and I mean online and in person? Where are your markets happening? You know, what do you want to tell us about that? Firstly, our markets are happening where the demand is. So if you're demanding something where you are and you don't have anything like this, we would love to come and set up a market in your location. And if you visit, visit us at herwardrobe.com, uh, there's a section there where you can suggest uh, which area you would like us to come to and uh, we'll take it from there. Uh, if you're in southeast Queensland or New northern New South Wales, we are operating in multiple locations. Uh, we are in Sunshine Coast uh, at a new venue uh, at Night Quarter, which is fabulous in Virginia. Uh, we're in Brisbane in two locations in Wavell Heights and Mount Gravatt. 
the Gold Coast, uh, we are in Rabina and Eleonora. Uh, we're in Mwilumba and also Bangalore. And when I say it like that, that's a lot of locations. It is indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so herwardrobe.com. That's right. Yep. And social media? Uh, her wardrobe markets. Her wardrobe markets. If anyone's listening, what can they do to help you with what you're doing? So if someone's listening and they're like, I love it, how can I help? Apart from turning up at a market and buying some stuff or, or having a stall in a market and selling some stuff and, and keeping that fashion side of things moving in a more circular way, what could they do to help you move your business forward and grow your business? So I'm looking at creating uh, our proprietary crowdfunding model. So basically, uh, if we get enough people on our website coming to say, we'd love this market in Toowoomba, then what I'd like to be able to do is have some kind of process and procedure setups uh, so that I can create like a, uh, a counter on our website for Toowoomba. And as soon as we hit a thousand people interested in this event, then that triggers us to then go and find a location and book it in and uh, start. Uh, selling, pre-selling some uh, stalls for that area. So if anyone has any kind of experience with setting up uh, crowdfunding or um, new locations, it's something that Google Startup Weekends do really well. So I don't know if you've seen um, the Google Startup Weekends. You can nominate your a city that you want and, and then get all your friends involved. And so if anyone has any kind of direct experience with setting that up or helping me plan out the stages to get that sorted, I would love that. Very good. I actually just launched a crowdfunding platform that I built myself last night. <laughs> slightly well, different. Lucky you've got so much spare time then, Joy. That's right. But uh, yeah, sli- slightly different purpose and a slightly different uh, outcome, but uh, still a, a similar type of thing. So maybe we'll chat later. But of course, if anyone is listening and can help Natalie out with that, that would be great. And reach out to her through herwardrobe.com and, and have a chat, have a coffee. She might even take you out for lunch. <laughs> Look, thanks so much for sharing today. I've really enjoyed it. I'm inspired now to go to a market and get myself some new t-shirts to wear so that I can, uh, yeah, maybe have a have a green one instead of a red one and a black one. Um, and well, just, one. just so you know, we say new to you. New to me. That's right. Yes. Yes. That's what I mean. <laughs> uh, which is always better because they feel better if they've been like washed and worn a few times, I think. Anyway. Absolutely. So that's cool. Um, Look, thank you so much. Really love having you in the program. Really grateful for your time today. And yeah, look forward to seeing you again soon. And all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Joy. It's been such a joy. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Ideas into Reality episode. And we hope that you enjoyed learning about our founder's journey and got a couple of takeaways from the lesson learned that will help end the flames of your idea. Assuming you did, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app and let your friends know too. They might just be sitting on an idea that you do not even know about yet. You can find out more about Canvas Coworking and Startup Toowoomba by visiting our websites, canvascoworking.com.au and startuptoowoomba.com.au or finding us on pretty much any social media platform. My name is Joy Taylor and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey and I look forward to introducing you to our next guest in our next episode.